Welcome to Franchise Marketing Radio, brought to you by SEO Samba, comprehensive high-performing marketing solutions for mature and emerging franchise brands. To supercharge your franchise marketing, go to seosamba.com. That's S-E-O-S-A-M-B-A dot com. Lee Cantor here, another episode of Franchise Marketing Radio, and this is going to be a good one. Today we have with us Steve Jackson with Hungry Howie's Pizza. Welcome, Steve. Hey, good morning. How are you today, Lee? Thanks for having me on. I am so excited to learn what you're up to. Tell us a little bit about Hungry Howie's. So you want me to back up and give you a little history yeah. on, the, on the company? Yes, Our, our first store was opened in a suburb of Detroit, Taylor, Michigan, by the founder of our company, Jim Hearn, in 1973. We've just crossed over 48 years. And prior to that opening, Jim had owned a couple of pizza shops in the 60s and early 70s of another brand in the Detroit area and got a little frustrated with them. So he, he left that brand. But while he worked there, I delivered pizzas for him just in and out of high school in the early 70s. And uh, Jim was... Uh, about 29, 30 years old. We were 17 and 18, my buddies and I, and he, he was just a mentor for us. We just thought he was the richest person that we knew. He had two or three businesses and we, we kind of idolized him. Well, he sold those pizza stores and he had a little hamburger stand on Telegraph Road in Taylor. And uh, in early 1973, decided to go back in the pizza business and that's where it started. So now was it built to be kind of a mom and pop pizza place or was it built to franchise since the, at the beginning? It was built as a mom and pop. This hamburger stand was called TikToks. There were about 20 of them around Detroit, the little white porcelain buildings, maybe uh, similar to a white castle, but there were a lot of these small little, uh, little hamburger stands around the Detroit area. And Jim basically kicked out a couple of booths, bought a set of pizza ovens, did the best he could to, uh, you know, change this into a pizza place and flipped it over within a week. So it was just uh, a new business for him. He had experience in the pizza business and thought that this would be a good opportunity for him. That's all it was, mom and pop pizza. So then when did the kind of pivot happen to saying, hey, you know what, there can be one of these anywhere, we can franchise this? Well, now you get into my history, okay? I had worked for Jim in the early 70s. My goal when I got out of high school was to be a teacher. So I commuted to Eastern Michigan University, which was about 20, 25 miles away from where I grew up and where I worked for Jim locally. And uh, I kept in touch with him. And with my buddies and I used to go meet with him every other weekend or so. So I worked at Ford on the line, building cars while I put myself through college. And uh, what ended up happening in 1974, I made $15,000 working on the line at Ford and starting salary for a first year teacher was $8,400 a year at that time. So I met my wife when we were 16, we got married in 1975. I was approaching my senior year in college and I was faced with the dilemma of even if I was lucky enough to get a teaching job and get my degree, 
actually, if I was lucky enough to get my degree, teaching jobs weren't even available at that time. So then I had to face the fact that I would have to leave Ford, which at that time was a job for life, which I detested working in the factory, and take that significant amount of a cut in pay, and there were no jobs available. So as I continued to talk to Jim, we kind of came up with the idea, well, how about if I open, open Hungry Howie's number two and you, you run that one? So I quit college going into my senior year. I quit Ford Motor Company and opened Hungry Howie's number two in 1976. And that's the first two stores. Jim and I had the first two stores. Following that in the 70s, we opened about a dozen locations with friends and relatives. Best man and my wedding partnered with a store. The maid of honor's husband and my wedding partnered with a store. A guy that I worked with at Ford quit and partnered with a store. Jim's brother opened a store. Got about a dozen stores going into the late 70s, doing okay. And, and keep in mind, we were in a very competitive marketplace. The first Hungry Howie's was open within 25 miles of the first Domino's Pizza and the first Little Caesar's Pizza. Very competitive marketplace, but we were able to hold our own and, and be competitive. I was kind of the catalyst to push Jim to consider franchising. And the experience he had with that pizza chain years prior, he's like, I don't think I want to do that. Well, I pestered him enough where I finally got him to go to a, uh, an attorney. And we began that process. And he basically said, we'll start this off. We'll franchise it. My goal is to move to Florida. So I'll oversee Florida. You take care of the rest of the country. And we'll see what we can do with this. And that's kind of how it started. That's how franchising began. We didn't award our first franchise until 1983. Now, um, what was kind of when he was looking at franchising and he was kind of hesitant, what were his pros and cons about going through the process? Well, Jim was a real laid back, uh, easygoing guy. And, you know, he didn't like the enforcement part of it. The, the cons were when he was with that other small brand, the ownership was uh, greedy and took advantage of people, and he just didn't like that experience. So uh, he was fine running his couple businesses, and that was that. So I kind of pressed him into this idea, and he kind of decided to go along for the ride. Now, um, what was the origin of the name Hungry Howie's? Well, when I was going to Eastern Michigan University, the most happening restaurant bar on campus was called Hungry Charlie's. I'll back up a few years before that, because when my buddies and I worked for Jim at the other pizza place in the in the early six or in the early seventies, we nicknamed Jim Howie, and that was because he was you know ten twelve years older than us. He had just built a brand new eighteen hundred square foot house in a suburb uh, west of Detroit. We grew up in thousand square foot blue collar neighborhoods and he had two new cars. So we nicknamed him Howie after Howard Hughes because <laughs> he was the richest person that we knew. So that name stuck. So then fast forward to 73, we're still talking to him. I mentioned about this happening bar on campus. And he says, Hey, I'm going to flip this hamburger stand into a uh, pizza place. I got to come up with a name. Well, I'm thinking hungry. Charlie's a cool place. Howie's his nickname. There you go. Hungry Howie's. That's how it happened. So he, he was kind of uh, flattered by that Howard Hughes uh, 
Yeah, I think he he enjoyed that. Yeah, <laughs> but Jim was just a, a plain guy that uh, didn't get caught up in the hullabaloo of success or anything. He just was a hard worker and kind of a little bit of a Pied Piper to us guys. We we really he was a mentor to us. He was an idol to us. And we followed in his footsteps. Now, the first dozen or so folks that were friends and family, were those just managers of restaurants there or those were their own stores? They were partners. They owned percentages of those stores. And then so then to make that shift to a franchise wasn't that difficult? No, not really. I mean, they didn't like the idea of going to franchising and, you know, understanding that all of a sudden now we've got to come up with you know, standards and training programs and what have you. I mean, think about it in the seventies, we opened these stores. We were just hardworking six, seven days a week people. We didn't get involved with food cost and labor cost and all this complicated, uh, all these complicated processes. Our barometer for check our for, for profitability was our checkbook. If there was money in it at the end of the month, we were doing pretty well. And facetiously, we had a cigar box as a cash register, and that's how those systems ran in the 70s. When we made the decision to franchise, I sat back and said, now we've got to come up with systems and procedures for people to follow to open these stores. So we started working on a training program that was uh, pretty simple at that time. And, you know, we're still working on it. We've still never totally completed it because it's just a living, breathing part of our business that has just transitioned for 40 years. And that goes to the heart of your kind of initial wanting to be a teacher, right? Because the business of franchising is is not necessarily the business of pizza making. Absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting. I'll share a tidbit with you. I had a big birthday back a, a number of years back. And uh, my wife and my oldest daughter went to Eastern Michigan University Provost and pleaded the case that uh, I should get an honorary degree for what my accomplishments were. And they they looked into it. They did all the investigation. And I'm proud to say I was the first person to receive that honorary degree from that university. And when I accepted that award, that's exactly what I said, Leo, that I wanted to be a teacher. I ended up being it anyway. Now, um, was the flavored crust part of the business always a part of Hungry Howard since the beginning, or did that develop over time? That developed in the first few years of the 80s. We sold a few franchises. We had, you know, maybe 25, 30 stores open. And one uh, franchisee in, in one of the suburbs of Detroit had played around with buttering the crust or putting sesame seeds on it and you know, we met and we, we looked at the possibility of that being an interesting niche in the marketplace. And um, we tested it in a few stores. We ended up coming up with uh, eight different flavors and decided to, in 1985, rolled that as our niche for our product. And it's been copied by everybody over the past 35 years, including every single top 10 franchise for pizza. And uh, we are the innovators of it. And that's basically uh, our single niche that we are very proud of developing in the pizza category. And that's another great testament to the power of franchising where you're able to learn from each other. um, And absolutely. And then share the knowledge and everybody benefits in the network. Right. And it's important that the franchisor is open-minded enough to uh, to listen to his franchisees and not just run a dictatorship. 
And we, we're proud that we do that. So now, how did um, COVID affect uh, your brand? Well, it, it was interesting. You know, today it's it's March 9th, 2021. So literally 12 months ago was when this was beginning to ramp up. We started hearing about it at the beginning of 2020. And then my recollections in mid-March is when schools started to close. And then by the end of that month, at least the state of Michigan went shelter in place and other states jumped on that. And what happened to us is in those first few weeks of March, our sales dipped double digits. We were on a pretty good run for a number of years for increasing same store sales over the last eight to 10 years, because we've done a lot to reinvent our brand and, and bring it to a, a higher standard. But that was pretty scary for everybody in those first couple of weeks of March. And we weren't sure what was going to happen. We sat back and reanalyzed our business uh, for the first time in 40 some years. We actually laid off a, a few people just because we were preparing for what might happen. We didn't know if every store of ours was going to be closed in the matter of a week. And uh, that said, we, our leadership team would usually meet once a week on Tuesdays. Uh, we actually started meeting every single day at 8.30 in the morning to discuss what we were in the middle of and what we needed to do to, to, to stay relevant. And uh, it's been 12 months, and that leadership team honestly has not met face-to-face -face since. We, we owe a lot to Microsoft Teams and the power of that, and that's uh, kind of taught a lot of us different ways to uh, run our businesses. But what ended up happening is as we got into those first two, three weeks of dips, we got into the first 10 days of April and our business started climbing and it climbed double digit same store sales. Now, the issues that were most challenging to us was staffing our stores because we rely on a lot of 16 to 22 year old people to run the back house and assemble the product and what have you. And those teenagers mom looked at and said, with what we're dealing with, you're not working, you're staying home. So it really decimated the restaurant industry's help of that 16 to 22 year old age group. So that forced us into making decisions over this last year at some times to even close stores temporarily or reduce hours. Most of our stores are typically open 11 to 11. We went through periods of time with some locations where we had to open from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. just to handle dinner rush because we didn't have the staff to do any more than that. So we were faced with countless challenges. As the PPE requirements came out, we had to source masks for all of our stores, which they became hard to find. We had to source more gloves. We ended up, you know, manufacturing a... Uh, a plexiglass shield for our, our counters for customer pickup. We had to put together the social distancing stickers for our lobbies. We worked hard and actually had already been working on this project of curbside pickup. We saw a need for that long before the pandemic, and, and that came in handy to, to institute. So we were faced with new challenges each and every week of trying to be relevant and just thank God we were an essential business. In the second quarter after April, 
after that takeoff in April, our sales were 20 plus percent over same store sales the year before. We exceeded 22, 23 in the third and the fourth quarter. We ended up just under 15% for the year for 2020. And uh, the first two periods of this year, we are up 22% over last year, same store sales. And a lot of times you can see specific spikes in our business related to stimulus checks. When the people receive the checks, we're a great product. The pizza business has literally been the shining star of the restaurant category in the last 12 months. And we're just proud and thankful to be that. Now, is a Hungry Howie's, is that a dine-in experience typically, or is it primarily delivery? Pretty much carry-out and delivery. Our typical store is about 1,400 square feet in an inline strip center. A uh, few have drive through a couple of them have a couple of tables in the event somebody grabbed a sandwich and they just wanted to sit down, but it's uh, very comparable to the top three or four uh, carry out delivery franchises in uh, inline strip centers. So now um, are you seeing that kind of the footprint of the store getting smaller and smaller because now more and more things are more curbside delivery? Well, our, our, Model percentages have changed somewhat. We typically run about 40% delivery, and we're still in that in that range even a year later. Uh, also, you know, for, for carryout, you know, curbside became pretty big in the summer. I think as the vaccine uh, continues to be given and uh, people, the marketplaces start to open up, you know, I'm not sure that it'll have the legs that it did last summer, but we will always try to make that effort because we think if the, the easier we can make our experience as frictionless as possible with our customers will be to all of our benefits. So we will continue to work towards curbside, but the carry out delivery curbside percentage of still remain pretty consistent. Now, do you do the delivery or do you use third-party delivery companies? We have always had our own delivery. Uh, the last 24 months with the buildup of third-party delivery, it's really drained the pool of drivers in this industry. I mean, if you think back not that many years ago, if you wanted some food delivered to your house, typically pizza was the first choice, maybe some Chinese, and then there was Jimmy John's. And there really weren't a lot of choices past that point. So we watched third party. We steered clear of third party. In the last 12 months, we kind of reevaluated that and third party uh, percentages and costs have changed over the last two or three years. Uh, we have done a test market with one of the companies where we pay a flat fee to take a product. And basically what happens is customers order from us, we notify that third-party company that we want them to take that one product and we pay them a flat fee to do so. That's what we've done over the last year. And a percentage of our business is, is handled through that third party. So now how do you see um, kind of the industry, I guess the restaurant and QSR industry as a whole kind of um, evolving post-COVID? I think it's going to be a slow process as, as we sit right now, uh, just looking at the state of Michigan, 
because that's where we started. Uh, the 1st of February, they opened dine-in restaurants for 25% customers just 30 days ago. And they're just looking at going to 50% now. Uh, we also have a lot of stores and I spend a lot of time in the state of Florida and it's a whole different world in Florida. They've been a hundred percent for months. And if you go out to a restaurant and have been for the last 60 days, you'd never know there was anything going on. They are full restaurants. So it's interesting to see how that changes geographically throughout the country. And I think based on governor decisions, it's going to affect that region specifically as this changes over the next six to 12 months. So now uh, from your uh, standpoint of growing the franchisees, is this, um, I I would imagine that there's some really good real estate deals around the country uh, because of some of the folks that had a difficult time and couldn't make it through COVID. Are you seeing growth in the franchisees? You know, it's a bit premature. We One of the areas that we cut a year ago, March, was we backed off our development department just because we knew that there wouldn't be a lot of development over those ensuing months. And uh, we've opened a handful of stores in 2020. We probably have five or 10 on the drawing board right now over the next 90 days. A lot of them are existing franchisees. But to your point of available real estate, That's what we have heard. And when you truly look at the tens of thousands, and I've I've heard the numbers exceeded 100,000 of restaurants that have closed nationally that will never reopen, your point of available real estate, you know, is spot on. And uh, we haven't been inundated with a lot of those opportunities, but we think that they are going to start, you know, showing up here right now because um, there, there's a lot of businesses that uh, didn't make it through this. And, you know, it's, it's changed our lives in many different ways. So now what does the ideal uh, franchisee look like uh, to you nowadays? Uh, I'm sure it's changed since the uh, uh, initial 12 of friends and family. Well, you know, typically it's always great to have a franchisee that's going to operate his business and and be there at that business. But, you know, we've kind of grown to the point to where, you know, we have a lot of operators that started with one store and a couple of them currently that started with one store have 60 now. So we have a lot of multi-unit operators and we're at the point now where our most attractive franchisee would be to find current franchisees of other brands that have built an infrastructure in a particular market that would be open to add a brand in that market aside from the one they have maybe they're in the chicken business or they're in the sub business maybe they want to add a pizza franchise into that market that they already are established in they have crews they understand the pros and cons of the restaurant industry and uh, they're they're the target people that could, you know, explode our six, our uh, growth over the next few years. And that that's our ideal person right now. We still have the onesie twosies that come in and want to open three or four stores, and we're open to talk talking to them also. Now, are there certain markets you're targeting? Well, the bulk, the lion's share of our stores of the you know five hundred and 
50 stores that we have four, you know, 380 to 400 of them are in Michigan and Florida. And it's basically because Jim moved to Florida and I was in Michigan. Uh, we have uh, expanded to 20 plus states as far west as California, as far east as Delaware. The natural progression of growth for us for a long time and continues to be the I-75 corridor from Michigan to Florida and all the surrounding states. We have stores in Ohio, Tennessee, you know, the Carolinas, Georgia. It's expanding that footprint through those areas and also be open-minded to somebody that would have an interest in opening a number of locations in other areas. The decisions that come into that are uh, supply chain and marketing. We have to make sure that we can meet the needs of, of those two areas and, uh, and then we'll we'll look pretty much in any area. Well, congratulations on all the success. If somebody wants to learn more, have a more substantive conversation with you or somebody on your team, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Just go to our website, HungryHowies.com, and it can lead you through the franchising area and uh, put you in touch with the right people at our corporate office. Well, Steve, thank you again for sharing your story today. It's an amazing story. And um, once again, congratulations on what you got thank, going thank on. Thank you for listening to it, and thank you for letting us share it with uh, your audience. All right, this is Lee Cantor. We'll see you all next time on Franchise Marketing Radio.